Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Staff Sergeant Beth King, King served as a crew chief and maintainer of a Chinook helicopter in Afghanistan. When her aircraft was hit by an RPG, she suffered serious but invisible injuries that went untreated for 18 months. My name is Beth King. I was uh, a staff sergeant in the United States Army as a 15 uniform, which is a Chinook maintainer. As a secondary MOS, I was a crew chief. I grew up military. Um, My dad was in the Navy. His dad and my mom's dad served. So, you know, I have um, so many family members had served, but my parents had five kids. And my dad was able to support us through his military career. So um, I had my son around almost 25. And by the time he was five, I was still struggling to be able to really provide a meaningful life, you know, it was, it was, everything was a struggle. So I always felt like I wanted to join the military, but, um, I am, I'm an identical twin and my twin didn't want to go with me right out of high school. So I didn't go. So I put off going, I went to college, played some soccer, ended up having a kid and decided I needed a better way to support him. So I looking back over my past, well, you know, when my dad was able to support all of us, in the military, that's maybe not a bad solution. Um, so I went and talked to a recruiter trying to figure out which branch I wanted to go into. And uh, one thing I learned from my dad's career was that sometimes he did, I think, 22 years. And he got out and he had a hard time finding employment just because he had so many different qualifications. He was like, it was just hard to find a civilian job. So in my mind, when I was selecting what I wanted to do, I was trying to find something that would have a civilian side after the fact, um, which is how I ended up with uh, Army Aviation as a crew chief. You know, I had a Navy father, so now I'm not 100% sure he was uh, really understanding why I would choose the Army. Uh, I, I think he, mostly he was just happy I didn't choose the Marines. To be honest, well, I actually enlisted specifically for the Chinook, um, which is that was actually one of the reasons why I went with the Army is that you had the most 
depending on how you score on your ASVAB, you have the most control over what you're actually going to do. So I was doing my research before um, I selected, and the Chinook in combat has two pilots and three back-enders. That means I had three opportunities to make a flight crew. Uh, the Blackhawk only has two back-enders. Here in the States, the Chinook still needs two, and the Blackhawk only needs one. So, and obviously the Apache and the Kiowa don't have any back-enders. So if I actually wanted to fly, which I did, uh, my best odds were to go with the Chinook. Um, going into the Army, I wasn't really even sure what a Chinook was. Other, like, like I, until I said, okay, these are, these are the odds, and then, then I researched it. But like, it's not like I had some great love for a Tannenbroder helicopter. It was all about a means to an end and having, uh, being a mechanic and a crew chief, there are all kinds of open doors in the civilian sector. Um, once I finished my career, it's the best aircraft in all of the military. Okay. Well, if we look just at the army for a second, uh, it flies faster. It flies higher and it carries more than any other aircraft. Uh, it is, it can do everything from medevacs to infills to exfills to cargo to bringing large amounts of water, food, and ammunition to people that are in desperate need. Um, you know, it, it was really, it, it was a, a aircraft that made me feel like I had a mission. You know, Blackhawks are either surveillance or the medevac or their VIP for the most part, right? So I didn't really, um, medevac is a, I'm not saying it's not. Uh, a good calling, but, you know, we also can do medevac with the Chinook. Um, and because of the altitude issues of Afghanistan, Chinook is actually the preferred uh, aircraft. It, can, it is more versatile, um, given on, you know, what the weather is, because heat can determine how high you can climb um, and all those factors. So, um, you know, it's just, you know, it is the best aircraft, in my opinion, my humble opinion, non-biased. So I ended up, I enlisted, I went to Fort Dixon, uh for basic training. Um, and then from there, I went to Fort Eustis. And I did my AIT or uh, advanced individual training there. I did really well. Things was going great. Um, it was, it was, I think it was eye-opening to me. I didn't realize how few women were in the field going into it. Until I got to AIT, and it's like a company of 200-something, and there's 20 women. So, you know, it was like, oh, okay, so we're definitely, there's not an even playing field over here. But, uh, so, I worked really hard. And I focused, um, you know, mostly, I think I, I had a, a slight benefit over my other counterparts, because I came in at, I, I turned 30 in basic training. So, and I had a five-year-old at home. So I was very focused. I was, I was, um, I was there to do a job and I wasn't playing around and I wasn't out there to have a good time. I was away from my kid. I missed him. I wanted to work home and get home, uh, work hard and get home. Um, so, um, I think a lot of ways it really motivated me to, to work harder at PT, work harder in the classroom, get my stuff done. Um, 
you know, and then, uh, yeah, that was entry. I think it was kind of a roller coaster. On one hand, I was super excited to get to actually do my job, um, put all the time and training and hard work I've put into use. Uh, you know, like I said, I have a long military history, so there was some pride in that. Um, I had obviously some fear. I was a single parent at the time, and it was really hard to leave my son. Um, but I felt blessed in the fact that. I, like as I mentioned before, I have an identical twin. He stayed with her the whole time. Um, if I was gone in training or um, deployment, he just, he looked like one of her kids, so he fit in. It was easy on him. He wasn't constantly have to answering why his mom wasn't there, which is, I think, a part of the hardship. And I think sometimes part of the struggle as we deploy is worrying about our children. So I felt like he was in a good place. I knew he was being cared for and that he looked like he belonged. Um, and to be 100% honest, other than war movies, I didn't really have any real experience. At the time, my dad uh, was in Vietnam, but he never really talked about his service at all while I was growing up. Um, so when I went to basic training, it was nothing like the movies. It was nothing like all the... Vietnam veterans I had talked to, what they said that basic training was going to be. It was so going into combat, I wasn't a hundred percent scared. Like I was, no, I was, I was worried about my son um, a little bit. Um, but I think I was just excited to do something. And, um, you know, to be honest, deployment is probably my favorite place to be. Um, and I, sadly, I only did it once, but like back home, uh, in training, you have all these factors, all these things going on around you. Uh, once I got to Afghanistan, it was the job. I woke up, uh, I went to the aircraft, I got it ready for a mission, I flew a mission. I came home, I put it to bed. I went to bed. I got up, I went and readied the aircraft. If I didn't have a mission that day, I just worked maintenance along the whole line, you know, like help out other people with their crews. But it was like, it was every day was exactly the same. It was all mission driven. Um, I didn't really have a ton of time to worry about too many other factors. Um, so it just seemed so much more simple in a way that it doesn't really make sense. Cause you know, we're, uh, I was, I was, we were in country for a month the first time I saw any enemy fire. So I was like there for like less than like maybe 30 days and I saw some stuff. And then a month later, uh, Christmas day, I saw my first RPG air burst right outside my aircraft. You know, but so there were things going on that should have been terrifying, but I think part of me was just like, I felt invincible, uh, I think a little bit because the aircraft is so awesome, you know, and we trained for this stuff and nothing had actually come into contact with us. It was all like sightings. It wasn't uh, actual interaction. Now, obviously changed uh, in July uh, when we had our incident and after that, war looked different to me but up to that point it was it was doing a job you know we come home and sometimes we find bullet holes in our rotors or stuff going through but it stuff that you don't realize is actually happening while you're flying so i think i was a little naive when i first got there you know um it was a little bit weird um at first i had some heartburn uh i was the only female in my unit i was i'm the first female in my company 
that ever fully progressed to crew chief. They had one female before me, and she failed. And when I came in, um, they had told me that if I didn't do well, that they're probably going to take a long break before they tried any other females. <laughs> so I felt a little bit of pressure that I had to succeed and I had to do it quick. Um, but so when I first came in, because I was the only female, they made me house separately from everyone else. So there was, uh, I think I felt a little bit isolated. I'd get messages last, um, flight plans would change, all this stuff would change. And then I'd get like this last minute notification and have to, have to run. But, um, shortly, I want to say maybe two months, two or three months into the mission, I was able to convince them that I should be allowed to move into the B-Huts with my guys. They were obviously they were worried about perception. I thought I was the only female, so they they decided they put me in the the commander's bee hut. So I had my first art, my commander, <laughs> the same bee hut. So I guess I figured I won't get in any trouble. So, um, but it was very much like, you know, it's just very close knit. You you do everything together. You know, uh, you have a bad day. You have a bunch of people around that fully get it. And, you know, there was just that sense of sometimes you don't even need to speak. It was just like you'd have a bad day and you all just sit around and drink some coffee or rip it or something stupid, you know, just sit there. And uh, our crew shack, they had like a, a game system. So a lot of times the guys would go play some video games after a long mission, um, just something to unwind. And sometimes it was just being in the presence of other people that fully get the things you're seeing and doing. Um, that just really helped in a way that my family back home would love to be there for me, but they just can't, um, you know, other than, other than my twin who I can just sit there and not speak and feel like she gets me. Afghanistan, we did all nighttime missions, but yeah, uh, I think when the mission started, it was like 12-ish and we got, or a little bit before 12s and we were hit around, uh. 1255, 1259s. I can't remember exactly. It was late. But for a week, uh, we had been setting up for an air assault. So uh, the issue with ground troops in Afghanistan is the terrain is horrid. It's hard to move equipment. It's hard to move people. It takes too long. And so a lot of times the Chinooks would come in and pick up a crew and their stuff and move them to different positions that were easier for, it was closer to their target, basically. So we spent a week in and out of this one valley, just dropping off pieces of equipment, dropping off people back and forth. And uh, so there had been a lot of like coming into the valley. There had been a lot of uh, show force that whole week. We were getting shot at, you know, some disc of fire. We'd shoot back and stop. Nah. And so this last night, the pilots were like, I think we want to fly higher tonight to avoid any of that. Like, you know, we had... 13 people, a John Deere Gator, a bunch of weapons, a bunch of ammo. You know, we had all this stuff. He's like, I think I just want to fly higher. Uh, it means we're going to have to circle to lose altitude because it's not a very large, like, there's no, there wouldn't be enough time to come back down. So we're like, oh, that sounds like a good plan. Um, so that's what we did. We were flying at a higher elevation. We're coming through absolutely no gunfire that night. And everyone's like, wow, that's weird. That's, that's actually kind of nice, you know? Uh, when we come in, uh, we get to right outside a uh, uh, Hanukkah Miracle, uh, which uh, was the FOB name. It was uh, right there in the Pesh River Valley. 
and uh, we start circling to lose altitude. And about 400 feet off the ground, an RPG comes through the belly of the aircraft, kind of at a forward angle, and went right into the gator. I was standing about, I was on the rampage, about four feet or so from where the RPG came in. And it went into the engine of the Gator and exploded, which ignited the gas line and caught the aircraft on fire. Now, because the Gator was there, I think it's the only reason they were able to land that vehicle, uh, aircraft, because otherwise the trajectory, it would have severed our drive, our drive training. We would have lost all ability. So really the Gator saved us. So, um, you know, the fire starts going and, the aircraft starts shaking. All the a wiring harness underneath was all severed, so the pilots had absolutely no instruments. Um, everything was lighting up, like warning, warning, warning. Everything was wrong. Um, but they still had control, so they were able to continue down. Um, but as the air flows through, basically it's pushing all the fire back towards me on the ramp. The aircraft was all kinds of shaky. Um, so I was kind of getting jumbled around. And it snuck, we have what we call a monkey tail, which is basically like a cargo strap that goes from between our shoulder blades to some point on the aircraft so that you can't get thrown too far, basically. But I, so I was hooked in, so I wasn't like too worried as I'm inching backwards up the ramp, um, trying to get out of the fire. You know, my boots are starting to singe a little bit. I'm like, oh, this is not good. And um, I hit my head off the aft transmission pan. And, you know, I'm just somehow I get knocked out. I'm not sure whether I just hooked out or if I wasn't aware of how close I was. And I stepped one step too far. But I went over the edge and I just kind of dangled by my monkey tail for the last 100 feet, 150 feet of descent. Um, so it's kind of shaking like a little rag doll. And uh, when they landed, they were right side high. All the rotor blades all like hit off the ground on the left and like the rotor blades were going everywhere. We had ammunition inside the aircraft cooking off in the fire. So it was like a little fireworks show in there, um, which really kind of ruined fireworks for me for the rest of my life, I think. I don't like the sight of them. I don't like the sound of them. But uh, we got down and... Uh, I realized in the shaking, my comms, my mic button was hung up. So I could hear them in my ears. I kind of lost consciousness there for a second. And I come back to them, like, going, trying to figure out if I'm still alive or where I'm at um, as they're trying to get everyone off the front of the aircraft. So I finally grabbed my mic cord, and I'm like, I'm here, I'm up. Um, I just need to come in to unhook myself. Um, so I crawled back into the aircraft, unhooked my tail, went to jump off, but then my vest got caught in the hinge. So I had to come back up again into it, uh, work my vest off, and then I jumped to the ground. Um, I don't know how far it was. I want to say it was, you know, anywhere from like a quarter to a, it's probably just a quarter of a mile we were from the fob we were trying to land in. Um, so. We all gathered up on the side of the aircraft, and we said, this is no good. We have to leave. Everything's cooking off inside. Uh, so the pilot decided that we were just going to run to the wall. 
and try to get someone to talk to us through the window of the, the tower in the, the wall around the fob. So that's what we did. We all ran up to the wall. We got permission to enter. So we all, one by one, helped everyone climb through the, climb through the window. Um, we got into the fob and then the Air Force PJs came to get us and bring us back to our fob uh, for the night. Yeah, and we were, we were in landing profile too, so the ramp was technically up, but the tongue was sucked in. I think that's where the issue was. So, like, I had just raised the ramp. Like I said, we're getting ready to land. So, I had just pulled the ramp up so we could land without damaging anything. And uh, But the tongue was in because it was so hot. Well, we like the airflow, so usually we usually flew with the, with the tongue down. Plus, it gives you another sector to shoot from if you need to. So, um, I think the pilots, at least one of the pilots, I don't know if they knew after the fact, um, when we had Apaches that were flying uh, Overwatch with us. So I think they caught a lot of it on video, but I know at least one of the pilots did realize that I had gone out the back. And I think that's why they were all panicking um, before I came back through and was able to find where my mic cord went to. I was so like amped up on adrenaline. I think it was the next day. I, I don't think I even slept. I laid down. I don't really remember sleeping. I just, I remember laying down, like, just being fitful. And when I got up, my face was killing me. My head was killing me. And, like, my back just hurt. Um, and I went to the med doc and the flight surgeon. And he was like, well, you know, you're in an explosion in a hard land. You're going to be sore. I was like, okay. So, you know, get some Motrin. Get some water. Have at it. And, uh. We, it took us four days to get cleared back to duty. Two of the people on the in the crew decided that they were done combat missions, like they weren't gonna fly again. And I was tempted, but like I said, being the only female, and knowing that if I wasn't able to hack it, I might be preventing other females to have an opportunity. I kind of felt like, well, now that they backed out, I don't, I, I can't, I can't. So um, I was in a lot of pain. I was kind of confused. I was saying, sometimes I used completely the wrong words when I was talking. Um, you know, I was having so much anxiety. Um, it would get time to get ready to launch. And all of a sudden I was, I was vomiting or I was just sick to my stomach. Like it was, it was bad. Um, but I, I ended up, it was 18 months since the incident before I got any medical treatment at all. And that's, I think that's, that's part of the problem with how my story ends. That was the biggest factor. Like my push to advocate and educate and, and others is knowing that had I sought medical attention sooner, I probably could have saved most of my military career. TBI is a traumatic brain injury. Um, you know, for a long time, they thought it had to be like a physical hit to the head. Um, and they're finding that in all honesty, that the concussive blasts are enough to do some serious injury, which was the case in, in my story. Um, some of the first symptoms I had were headache, confusion, 
um, dizziness. Um, he says uh, losing words, um, stammering, stuttering, irritability, um, quick mood changes. Now, obviously, if you had these symptoms before a blast, it may not be the TBI itself, but you know, like the the quick explosions was something I I had never had issue with. I had always been pretty restrained and well composed. So that was a huge, that should have been a huge red flag that all of a sudden I'm just like, um, my fuse is lit, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat. Um, no one in my chain of command fully understood what TBI was really like other than like, like obviously like a hard blow or it's something like, you know, but I think I'm not sure that any of them realized how serious it could be just being four feet from a blast. So a lot of my symptoms kind of got placated to, I was just being hysterical or maybe it's PTSD. I'm just stressed out. I just, I went through this hard thing. I just kind of need to suck it up and move on. And there's a mission to do. There's a mission to do, you know, so, uh, not wanting to be weak, not wanting to be seen as weak, not wanting to ruin every other female that came after me's chance. When I was asked to please continue with mission, I did. About a week after, I noticed like my legs started swelling weird. My right side got weak feeling and just kind of heavy. Uh, you know, all these things. Uh, my speech was messed up. Uh, my headaches. 24-7, I couldn't get rid of. My face was killing me. Like, I was just in pain, and I was miserable. But about a month after the incident, I actually ended up breaking my wrist in two places, so I got grounded, and I was no longer flying mission. I was just doing ground maintenance for the last two or three months of my deployment. <clears throat> so, it was the last two months um, that I was just doing ground. Um, I got home and still complaining of headaches and body pain. And I was getting ready to PCF. They said, look, you just wait till you get to where you're going. If you do it now, if you seek medical now, it's going to hold you up. You're not going to report on time. You're going to have all these issues. I said, okay, I can do that. I can be a good soldier. I just you want me to wait. I'll wait. So we got home uh, within two months, three months. I was in a new duty station. I asked about medical because um, I was still having these headaches. Uh, I was getting, I was, I couldn't, my balance was off. I started falling. My foot started dropping at this point. On my right foot, half foot drop. All these things kept adding up. Like they were getting ready for deployment. They asked me to hold off for the mission's sake. Um, and finally it came to, I had to get cleared by a neurologist because I had too many months in a row reported headaches, daily headaches. So they had to send me to a neurologist who looked through my chart, saw the incident I was in and said, how long were you in TBI treatment? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't even know what a TBI was at that point. Um, she's like, you definitely have a TBI. We're dealing with all these other things. Um, I will not release you back to flight duty until you're seen through the TBI clinic. So then I go from neurology and TBI is where I start learning um, about what was actually happening in my brain. And I think that was part of what was so hard for me was I had all these things going on. 
uh, was continuing to degrade and get worse. And I didn't understand why. And some parts of me just thought I was nuts. Like I was having all kinds of emotional dysregulation. I would get super upset at really small things, but I couldn't pull it back in. I would just explode. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's just the PTSD. It's just, you know, it's just this, it's just that. But it was more to it than that. I think they, they line up together. So they overlap each other. But I, I, I feel like, um, the greatest purpose of any of this is that I could go back out and tell other people, if you're injured, you know your body better than anyone else. If something is wrong, get help. Don't, don't wait. Um, the mission is not more important than your well-being. When it's, if you really think about it, in the state I was in, I could have done a lot of bad. I could have messed up. I could have, my words weren't coming out right. I would use the wrong words. I would lose balance. I could fall. Like, I could have been a detriment on many missions. You know, like it, it is important to value ourselves enough to be best for the mission. You know, like a warm body isn't all that's needed for a successful mission. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Really, my military family really was just that. Um, they were family. And I think being medically retired, I kind of drew a divide there, uh, which left me feeling very isolated and separation. I'm left in the civilian world with people that don't understand what I've been through, what I've seen, what I've done. You know, it's hard. How do you relate to someone when, you know, they want to, talk about a traffic jam and how it inconvenienced their day yet the traffic jam you know is triggering your ptsd because you feel like you're a target and you're just you know especially i i, I when i got out i was in el paso and uh, it looks like afghanistan they got all these you're in a bowl you have all these mountain ranges around you they have towers at top so sometimes the light will hit them and it'll glisten just right and it's triggering you know and i i didn't have a my military family got it. I could just be like, oh my God, this is killing me. And they're right there with me. And then civilians would be like, oh yeah, it was horrible. I had to wait an extra 10 minutes, you know? And so it was a hard transition, I think, into civilian life. And um, 
I definitely miss my military family. And, uh, you know, uh, a couple, I have a handful of people that I still have contact with. Um, I think some of it, it gets hard for them sometimes. I think the issue is that, especially my crew, they all continue with their careers. I, I was four foot from the where the RPG came in. I was the most severely injured. And I think, I don't know if sometimes I just feel guilty about the fact that they're, they're flourishing. They're going on, and I lost you know, my career. So I'm, I'm assuming that's what's going on. I don't really know. We usually, I touch base with most of them on our live day. And, you know, after that, this, they got, they got their lives. Um, they're doing good things. Um, you know, it's just sometimes things, uh, are hard to understand. You know, there was a greater loss than just my career when I was medically retired. Traumatic brain injury is so complicated that we don't really fully understand all, all of it or how much can be recovered from. Usually, the VA standard of care is two years of therapy and then you're done. Because in the first two years, you're going to have the fastest, uh, best responses, right? You're going to grow the most. And then it really kind of slows down after two years. But at two years, I was still stammering and stuttering. I struggled to get a sentence out in a way that others could hear me. I still have slight stammer and stutter. You really have to listen to it or know what you're hearing to hear it, I think. Um, but it was really bad. I was unintelligible at times. Um, I struggled. Like I had... Uh, it caused some neurological issues because we took so long to get treatment and it just kept so flying mission for another month after the TBI not getting brain rest. I just continued to kind of slowly worsen it. But I ended up uh, advocating for myself to stay in physical therapy, occupational therapy and speech therapy for six years. And if you Google me and look for stuff from interviews from 2019, and then you listen to this podcast, you'll understand the difference is <laughs> is night and day. You know, in 2019, I still struggled to hold to sit upright. I was lean all the time. I was jerking still. Like uh, the brain is amazing, and. It is they're learning more and more every day about how there is really no end to improving. The gains get slower, and I think sometimes people become less motivated to stay at it because they're not seeing the growth. But I have the, uh, I don't even know what the right word is, but because of the different interviews I've done, I'm able to look back and go, oh my gosh, like, I, it's night and day, and I still have things uh, that bother me. Um, I sometimes still have a hard time understanding if someone says something, uh, I may not fully get what they're saying, or I might uh, have a hard time getting my point across because it comes out a little crooked. So communication is probably one of the things I struggle with most on a day-to-day basis. I still have a lot of the quick upsets. Um, I've gotten really good at realizing when it's happening and being like, well, I just need a minute. Like, 
This is hitting me funny. Just give me a second. Let me, you know, in the beginning, it wasn't like that. It would just like a fuse would go and I would lose it for like hours. Um, so it's a lot of work, um, I think. But I feel like uh, that is where I started realizing I really I really want to push the narrative of seek help, advocate for longer care. Uh, you know, at two years, the, uh, my doc was just like, well, this is where you're at. You need to find acceptance. And I was like, no, I can be okay being here today, but I'm not ready to quit trying to improve. I'm worth it. Nobody more special than anybody else. But I really, I really hope that people will hear this and know that they are worth the effort. They are worth the time. The TBI, like I said, I had a lot of neurological effects. It weakened the right side of my body. When I first got out, I felt like I couldn't do anything. Like my body was just, I had all this pain, headaches, and my foot just had foot drop and neuropathy on my right side. I started, I went to a, a couple of cycling programs, uh, Soldier Ride with Wounded Warrior Project. I went on a couple other programs. There were so many agencies out there to help, but it got me moving again. I had spent four years from injury to when I started actually finding adaptive sports, doing absolutely nothing. I was dark and I just sat around um, because I didn't know how to adapt. My body was failing. Migraines 24 seven. Uh, I couldn't keep my balance. I couldn't sit up straight. I was falling over. Like all these, all these things related to my TBI. And then I started doing adaptive sports. We didn't realize I had some issues in my spine where I had some veins that had been pretty nicely compressed due to all the shaking. And so I went from just cycling to doing track and field. And track, I didn't know, a specialized wheelchair. It has one tiny wheel out front, a long boom, and you kind of just kind of, like, you look like you're a turtle. Your legs are curled up under you, you know, and uh, you're just pushing the wheelchair around this track. That position cut off blood supply to both my feet, which probably wouldn't have been a big deal had it only been, like, here and there. But I was training up for Warrior Games and Invictus and... I had these big goals. So I was spending hours in this chair. And all of a sudden, uh, my neuropathy in one foot became severe pain in both feet. And that just continuously got worse. And we we didn't realize. I probably spent two, three years training several hours a week, every week. I wasn't real smart back then, so I didn't take a lot of rest days or time off. I didn't take training breaks. It was just, it's what got me out of bed. Like I was still struggling with mental health and depression and anxiety. And so my injuries got worse is what I'm trying to get at. So about three years ago, the VA said, I went to them and I was like, look, I'm using these, this cane. I'm using these walking crutches. I'm still falling all the time. I don't feel safe. What can we do about my feet? And they put me in a wheelchair and they said, this is probably a better way for you to get around. And I was like, but what can we do about my feet? And they're like, we don't understand nerve. We don't understand nerve pain. 
There's nothing. You've done all these medications. This is, you're going to have to learn to live with the pain. And I was angry. I was like, I asked for a treatment and you gave me a mobility device, you know. Um, So about a year into it, I had met some other athletes that had talked about their success with amputation, below the knee amputation for complex uh, regional pain syndrome, which is currently what I'm diagnosed with in both my feet. So I have TBI and all that neurological stuff. I have issues throughout my spine and complex regional pain syndrome. And that is the last three years have been advocating and going through trial and trial and this medication, that medication, spinal stimulators, like doing everything else possible to lead to no other option. Uh, and that's where we're at. So in a few weeks, we're going to proceed with, uh, doing the first leg. And because of the brain injury, uh, they want to wait to make sure that it actually, the way they do it now, I'm not just being getting an amputation, but they're going to basically tie the nerves back in. So they won't grow neuromas. And it should complete the circuit. So my brain should register. My foot's not there. I shouldn't have as many phantom pains. Pain should be overall way better than what I'm dealing with right now. And hopefully that would mean prosthetics and back up and walking and not stuck in a wheelchair where my legs work, but my feet do not. So um, because of the brain injury, that's why the huge gap of time between surgery one and surgery two is they want to make sure that it actually works and that the damage in my brain and not still going to receive pain even though it's not there. When I first got into sport, adaptive sport, I mean, I, I did sports growing up. Uh, I was always very competitive. I liked to win, but it was all team sports. And it's funny, it's like now in my adaptive world, I, I prefer individual sports. <laughs> I don't know why, but I do. Uh, so. Um, in the beginning, it is what got me to get out of bed because I didn't want to. I was going to do these things that I was uncomfortable with. I was unfamiliar. And I didn't want to look like an idiot. I didn't want to look at these competitions having not trained. So it, the exercise itself obviously helps with depression and helps with anxiety. But the fear of failing helped get my ass out of bed when I was depressed and didn't want to face the world um, because there were days where my body just absolutely hurts. And there are days where my mind is just like, I just can't people today. I can't cope. I am, I still have nightmares sometimes. I still have, you know, just days where I just don't want to deal. And anxiety is real and depression is real and they can be crippling. So I think having something to force me out of bed in the beginning, that's all it really was. And then the exercising brings up endorphins and all these things and it's really good for you and it makes you feel better so then your brain over time goes oh i get out of bed i feel better um but then it gets to this point where for me i found javelin and i love it it is it um i also threw shot put and i threw discus and i'm really shot put the movement for it still hurt my body like it just sucked 
Um, I wasn't horrible at it, but uh, shot put itself wouldn't motivate me enough to keep practicing. Like it just, I didn't, it, it didn't feel good. And then I went to a comp, I got classified and realized I now only had shot put or javelin and I had never seen a javelin before. I was in 2021. I had, I never, never seen a javelin and uh, I, they changed my classification. That's all I could throw now, shot put a javelin. So I went and ordered a javelin. And today, I think Paralympics, me bettering myself, like when I first picked up that javelin and threw it for the first time to where I am now, it's like this, how far can I go? Like how much better can I get? Like, so... Uh, yeah, I would be lying if I said I didn't want to make the Paralympic team. But the truth is, I could miss it in 2024 and still be happy if my trajectory is, is headed in the right direction. Right? Like, it is, end of the day, most important thing to me is, am I better today than yesterday? And something about my, is something about my throw, my life, like, and all my plans, I just want to consistently be bettering myself for myself for my family for the world i i want tomorrow to be better than today and i think that is the driving force for me mostly but yes i would love i would love to go to the paralympics but the truth is i just like being better like i like improving i like growth it it's like all this effort is not meaningless all this pain and suffering has led to me improving, then it, it, it's worth it. You know, I don't know. That might sound cheesy, but. That was Staff Sergeant Beth King. To learn more about King and how the Wounded Warrior Project aided in her recovery, visit the link in the show description. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.